Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that your words are true. We thank you that you really have risen. We thank you, Father, that you've sent us Jesus, that you've given us the Spirit. And I pray now that my words are clear, that they're helpful, that they bring you glory and honor, burn off whatever doesn't do those things. Holy Spirit, be our teacher today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Happy Easter. He is risen. He has risen indeed. Wow, to be together in a full room and to see some of you that I know have just been on the screen, it is awesome to be together. So whether you're here on the floor, whether you're way up in the balcony, whether you're joining us online today, it is good to be together on Resurrection Sunday. And whether you've been here for years or this is your first time today, we're glad you're here. Whether you come fully convinced and you are shouting, he is risen indeed. Or whether you're skeptical, somebody drug you here and you're playing along. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that you're here today. I believe God has an important message for us today through his word. And as you think about the events of whatever happened in the family tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, over 2,000 years ago, whatever happened in that tomb has fundamentally changed history. It is the most important event that has ever occurred. So whatever happened or didn't happen inside that tomb has fundamentally changed everything. In 2,000 years of philosophy, theology, politics, Life events have not changed the fundamental importance of that question. What happened on that first Easter Sunday? What happened in that tomb? This morning, our objective, if you've been with us for a little bit, you know that we've been in Paul's letter to the Romans. And it just so happens that this particular time, we are starting one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, Romans 8. And at the same time, we are looking at what happened on that particular Easter Sunday. So we're going to go back and we're going to look at a little bit of the narrative from Luke. We're going to follow along with Paul. But there are three questions we have today. Three fundamental questions that we all have to wrestle to the ground. First of all, what happened on that first Easter Sunday? What happened Number two, how do you know it's true? How do you know it's true? And then the third, why does it matter to you today? What happened? How do you know it's true? And why does it matter to you? Let's begin with the first question. What happened? What actually happened? This is, first of all, a historical question. The Christian faith in a unique way stands or falls on a historical event. 
that either happened or it did not. As we've already read from Luke 24, I'll just take you to verse 5. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. There's some basic facts that the historian Luke will point to, and the other gospel writers will also point to. We know that Jesus died. If you were here on Good Friday, we were able to remember and meditate on that event. We know that Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the ruling council, a member of the Sanhedrin. While everybody else said, hey, it's time for Jesus to go, he would not consent to that and took the risk and buried Jesus. The disciples believed he was dead and that he would stay dead. That's important to understand. They believed that he was dead and would stay dead. They were not a bunch of gullible folks that just thought that these things happened all the time. The women discovered the empty tomb. They made claims of seeing angels and the risen Jesus. They told Peter and the rest of the disciples. John tells us that he and Peter ran to the tomb. Now, if you read John's account, he says he got there first. (laughs) He includes that detail. The beloved disciple and the fastest runner. The disciples made this claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. This was the message that they preached. This was the message on which the church was built. For some of you, this is a familiar story. But this is the history. These are the basic facts. Let's look at the theology. Let's go to Paul for a minute. What happened? What happened from a theological sense? In other words, what does this mean in the big story of God and his relationship with us? I want to take you to Romans 6, verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Let me say that again. Death no longer has dominion over him because he is risen. This is the intellectual part, but we we, we can shout a little bit too. That's all right. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So in the grand scheme, big picture of the Bible, Jesus defeated the power of sin and death. Big picture all the way back to Genesis. Everything pointing to him. Let me take you to Romans 8, verse 1, that we've already read, but let me, let's look at it again briefly. Paul writes this, There is therefore now no condemnation. 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we see here in a theological sense, how do you make sense of God? How is the resurrection the peace that holds it all together? We see that God sent his very own son to die on a cross, to meet the righteous requirement of the law that it might be fulfilled in us, to make us right with God. Not through our own righteousness, not through our own good works, but through the righteousness of Christ. Not only did Jesus pay the penalty for our sins on the cross, but when we put our faith and our trust in him, God looks at us, amen, with favor. He looks at us with favor. The wrath that was meant for us, the anger towards our sin, was put on his son Jesus so he can now look at us with favor. This is not our own doing. This is a righteousness that is not our own. It is a foreign righteousness. From this we get the core truth of the gospel that we've been talking about in Romans this whole series. The good news. The gospel is the good news. The good news that Jesus defeated the power of sin and death and rescues all who believe in him. That's the core truth. This is the gospel. This is why we are here today. So that's what happened. What happened historically, just a sketch of what happened theologically. Now, how do we know it's true? That's a great question, isn't it? How many of you today have wrestled with this question? How do you know it's really true? I know some of you have been in process on that. Some of you are still in process with that. And let me tell you today, that's okay. But how do we know it's true? Two ways to know something is true. I'm going to make it simple. There's the objective and there is the subjective. The objective, it's things you can, things you can measure, things you can observe. Think of it this way. If you tear your ACL, you break your arm, you get an x-ray, you get an MRI, they can look at it. They can see it. Whether you go to a hospital in Indiana or a hospital in California or Alaska or Paris or Australia, it's going to be the same. Your arm is broken. Your ACL is torn. That is objective. But there's also the subjective. What is your personal experience? I want you to think of that same scenario if you've been in a hospital. Unfortunately, I've spent many days 
They always ask you a pain scale question. They've got these little faces, you know. You've got a zero, which is a smiley face. You've got a ten, which is tears rushing down the face. I've been on every part of the pain scale. But that is subjective. It is no less real. You feel that pain, but it is subjective. It is your individual experience. So things are true objectively, and things are also real subjectively. Are you with me this morning? Are you tracking with me? Think about this. I want you to think about the resurrection for a moment. First of all, let's tackle it from an objective perspective. Luke, the doctor, the historian, writes this at the beginning of his gospel. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So that you might have a foundation on which to build your belief. So for us today, the bottom line is, do you trust the account? Do you trust the news? Oh my goodness, that is a difficult question to ask in this day. Do you trust what you hear on the news? Everybody shakes their head. Today we live in an age of skepticism, gullibility, echo chambers, and market-driven news. Everybody has an angle. Regardless of your politics, everybody has an angle. We live in a culture where bad news sells. Fascinating study uh, just came out uh, last month. Dartmouth and Brown University uh, study. It was rinky-dink universities there. Um, in the National Bureau of Economic Research. They were looking at news reporting of the pandemic. How many of you have watched some news about the pandemic? How many of you are sick of news about the pandemic? How many of you can see a light at the end of the tunnel? <laughs> we can see it. But this study says this. He says, when you look at all the news that was reported about the pandemic in the United States... 87% of all those reports, conservative media, liberal media, 87% were negative in their tone. Have you seen anything negative on the news? They looked at sources outside the U.S. that were more publicly funded. 50% were negative. They looked at scientific studies about the pandemic. Only 64% were negative. I'm not trying to play an amateur sociologist, but I know this. Bad news sells. When you put money in it and your, your job is to report news and make money in the process, bad news sells. 
There is a sense in which there is a bias in how news is reported and how we receive it. If you're in the business of making money and news is what you're selling, you're going to share the bad news. Now, I want you to think through that for a minute. Because part of what we need to do in this journey, part of what we need to do in this process is peel away layers. We need to peel away layers of bias. We need to recognize our bias. We need to recognize our cynicism. I don't know about me, but sometimes I can watch the news and I could say, how could anything be true? How can anything be true? And somehow I think, boy, that's a new question. Then I go all the way back to Pontius Pilate, who was in the middle of a mess, and he had to try to figure out what he was going to do. And he exclaims, what is truth in this kind of cynical way? I don't want you to be cynical this morning. Let's cut through those layers for a minute. Can we trust this account of Luke? Can we get to the truth of what really happened some will say, no, you can't. There's too much time has passed. Story doesn't all hang together for me. But do you have a negative bias? Is there any evidence that would convince you? Sometimes I want to ask people, do you want this to be true? Do you want this to be true? Now let me tell you briefly why I believe this account is true. I'm going to do this quickly. There are all kinds of resources if you want to dig deeper. First of all, the process Luke went through. Luke had traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys, starting in the late 40s and into the 50s. And in about 60, AD 60, he goes to Rome. Then he sets out to make this orderly account. So he goes through the process, and he gathers up all the information inspired by the Holy Spirit, and a smart guy out investigating what happened. We can hold those two together as we think about how the Scriptures were put together. God inspiring, God working through Luke, Luke gathering the evidence and writing an orderly account. Now, so I like the process Luke went through. Second, there is embarrassing material that Luke includes in the Gospel. There's embarrassing material that the gospel writers include, as if to say, hey, if they were going to make this up, I'm not sure they would include it. The disciples, they denied Jesus. They forgot what he taught them. They, they all believed that he was dead. They all believed he would stay dead. They were afraid. Peter would deny him. He couldn't even handle the scrutiny of a servant girl who questioned him. Even when the women shared they thought it was what? An idle tale. They were not champions of great faith from the beginning. They were weak. Secondly, the testimony of the women. It's the women who are the first to see the empty tomb. It's the women who are the first to share. Yeah, Peter would confirm it. John would confirm it. But Jesus would first appear to the women. 
Now, why is this such a big deal? Because the testimony of a woman would not stand up in court at this particular time. If I were going to make this up, I would not have included that testimony. Even when we get to Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians, there's this early creed that they're trying to say, this is, you know, this is what we've codified, this is what we're going to pass on. It's interesting how they don't include the women. But when we go back to the earliest passing on of this, yes, it's the women. They didn't scrub out the women. They didn't do some editing to make it more palatable to their audience. And then finally, the transformation of the disciples. I want you to think about that for a minute. You have a set of facts, a set of things that occur. How do you account for those, that evidence? What happens? I look at the lives of the disciples. I look at Peter. I look at the one who denied. I, I look at Thomas, the one who would doubt. I would look at Saul of Tarsus. I would look at Jesus' brother James. All who would deny him and all would become champions boldly proclaiming the gospel. Something happened. Something happened that would transform them. With nothing to gain and everything to lose, they boldly proclaimed. Many of them gave their lives for the gospel. You can know the certainty of the things you have been taught this morning. You can have a solid foundation for your beliefs, You don't have to stick your head in the sand. You don't have to run from any debate. You can have confidence in what you believe. You can say he is risen, not as just some hopeful wish, but as a solid belief based on evidence. That is good news today, my friends. Now, that's kind of the MRI or the x-ray. Now let's get to... That's subjective. Let's get to how we experience Christ. This is what the whole chapter of Romans 8 is about. But let me take you to Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. This is a promise of life with God right now. This is a promise of freedom from sin and death. So how do you know this is true? The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Think about that. Spirit at creation. God's presence in the tabernacle. God's presence in the temple. Now He is present with you. We have the experience of being set free from the bondage of sin. Set free from the pride that says, I've earned it. I am set free from the shame of never measuring up. We are free in Christ. We are set free for a life that glorifies God now and forever. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is the Son of God, and what he says is true. 
If Jesus rose from the dead, the Spirit is real. If Christ is in you, then you have the life of the Spirit, the life that is truly life now and forever. The Spirit will dwell in you. You can have a life with God. I want you to think about that. You can have a life with God. Now, what does it matter to you today? We've talked about some of the thinking stuff, but why does it matter to you today? I was thinking for a minute about my own my own family. I was thinking about our, our church family as well. And uh, yesterday I had the opportunity to celebrate Easter with my, my in-laws. So, you know, we're, you know, a lot of us are together and, um, you know, we're in, we're in a process. The family's together. And I want you to think of your family. And I want you to think of the generations that are together. What difference does the resurrection make? In the midst of your joy, in the midst of your pain, what difference does the resurrection make? So I'm going to share just for a minute about my family, what that looks like. I've got three kids. My youngest, Seth, he's a junior in college. And I, what I would say to him and what I would say to all our students, all our kids, you live in a performance culture where you're always measured by your grades, your athletic, artistic performance, your appearance, your social media likes. I remember back when Seth was in middle school and he had this nickname, Sully. Everybody called him Sully. Took me a minute to understand what that referred to. Sully stood for cellulite. Because he had some an older brother and some friends who were a little rough on him at times. But I want you to think about that. Kids, you know, you, you are not bound to the lie that says you are what others think of you. As a follower of Jesus, you are free from that lie. Because the resurrection is true, and you have the Spirit you are a child of God. You are free to use the gifts, the talents that God has given you to pursue your dreams, your calling, wholeheartedly. As you look to your future, students, kids out there, pay attention. As you look to your future, you are free from those lies, free from those names that others will put on you. Know that that promise is true for you today. I was thinking of my middle guy, Johnny, who's um, going to get married in, in June. Wonderful fiance, Sadie. They've got, uh, they're starting their careers. They're starting their life together. Moving to the big city of Chicago. Life is in front of them. What I would say to them and what I would say to our younger folks with Married, single, with life in front of you. Your career, your marriage, as important as those things are, 
They were not designed to give you ultimate meaning. Even your marriage, your most important relationship in this life is only a signpost of what points to what's eternal. Because the resurrection is true and you have the Spirit, you are free from the lie that says you are what you do. You are free to put Christ at the top and at the center of your life. You have the opportunity now with your whole life in front of you to invest in that which matters most. You can think with God in every decision that you make. My oldest Claire, her husband Andrew, they're going to have a baby in June. Last night I put my hand and I felt the heartbeat for the first time. It's pretty amazing. I would say to them and I would say to all parents, you will feel and you will always feel the weight of being a parent. You will always feel that weight. But because the resurrection is true and you have the Spirit, you do not have to bear that weight alone. You do not have to bear that weight alone. Jesus is with you now, and he will be with you in every season of parenting. You are free from the lie that says your worth is now defined by the success of your kids. You are free to love your kids unconditionally as you filter your love through God's grace for you and his love for you. Remember that you didn't do anything to earn God's love. My in-laws are in a new season. Father-in-law is battling Parkinson's. They're moving from their 50-year-old house into a senior living community, and it's a long, hard, painful process. As they look out to that season ahead, there is pain and there is suffering. Maybe you're in that situation today, but because the resurrection is true, there is hope. We're going through pictures, and it's like those folks that have gone on, that have passed on, you will see them face-to-face someday. You will see them face-to-face. And I know some of you are looking forward to that day, and those pictures won't mean near as much when you see them face-to-face. So there is hope. There is hope in this season of life, and there is hope in the resurrection. But God is not through with you yet. He is still working in you and working through you. And then Kim and I, we're, we're kind of in the middle of it all. Some of you are with me this morning. You're just in the middle of it all. And it just keeps coming and coming. Because the resurrection is true and we have the Spirit, we are free from the burden of saying we have to be in control. We have the freedom to walk in the Spirit and simply do the next right thing. There is freedom in that. So whatever stage you're in today, I want you to think about that. Because the resurrection is true and you have the Spirit, you are free. Now we're a church family. It's good to see be together. Paul in Romans 16, he, he has all these thank yous and he's got men and women, married, single, 
different ethnicities, different socioeconomic classes, and all together as a church, different generations. Because the resurrection is true and we have the Spirit, we have a purpose as a church that is bigger than ourselves. We have a power greater than the sum total of our gifting and our sweat. We are free to think with God and faithfully respond and not lean on our own understanding. We can acknowledge that following Jesus is a team sport. It is a team sport. It is not a solo operation. We're called to be ambassadors for Christ. We're called to pray and minister to the 100,000 in our community who don't have a church home. As we think about our church in this season, we're praying, God, how are you aligning resources to reach the next generation? How might use, you might use the resource of the gathering place? What's the new season for our facilities? What's the new season for our church? How do we come together and connect and serve and grow and truly reach our community? As we can see the light at the end of the tunnel of the pandemic and we can come together and we can be at full strength. It is not in our own strength. It is not in our own strength. We are free and empowered by the Spirit. Now, some of you this morning, as you hear these things, as you think about what if the resurrection were really true? What if I truly had the Spirit of God inside me? You may hear this and you may say, Really? I feel like I'm on the outside. I feel like I don't belong. Paul's pretty direct. He says this in verse 9. He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. What does that mean? It means you're on your own. It means you're on your own. And my friends, I would say today, if you're here or you're listening in, I love you too much not to share this truth. If you have not put your faith and your trust in Christ, you are on your own. So maybe today you're asking the question, how do I belong? The answer is simple. Paul says this, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you can do that today. You can do that right now. You don't have to have it all figured out. You can pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Take that step today and confess and believe. You can do that in your seat today. Matt and the worship team are going to come forward and they're going to lead us in some singing. The Spirit may lead you to come to one of our tables and talk with somebody and pray with somebody. And my friends, you can come to the tables and you can, can pray with you or for you for anything today. I want you to respond to the Spirit. What happened on that first Easter Sunday is true. And it makes all the difference now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true. 
that it's true not just in an intellectual sense, but it's true in our hearts. Holy Spirit, move in us in these moments as we sing and as we respond. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.